Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall, and today it's a conversation with the legendary Terry Farndar, the longtime brewmaster and founder of the Pink Boots Society. She's here for a wide-ranging conversation about her career, brewery safety, recipe development, creativity, and forging a path in the beer industry. First, please go visit allaboutbeer.com. There you can find original articles, reviews, news, insights, and podcasts. Listen to shows like Brewer to Brewer and the All About Beer podcast simply by searching All About Beer wherever you listen to shows. This show and all of the work we do, it's supported by you. Please go visit patreon.com slash allaboutbeer to help keep the content fresh. A few bucks goes a long way to fund writers, photographers, creators, and editors. Again, that's patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. And if you'd like to learn more about advertising on this show or any of our podcasts, please email info at allaboutbeer.com. Speaking of that, this episode is brought to you by the Best of Craft Beer Awards. Attention Brewers, registration is now open for the 2024 Best of Craft Beer Awards. Now in its 10th year, this is a BJCP-sanctioned event judged by fellow brewers, professional judges, and industry leaders. It's judged in Oregon, and it's the third largest professional brewing competition in North America. It's also a chance to have your hard work evaluated and rewarded. In addition to traditional styles, new this year is the Smoothie Sour Style category and the Collaboration Competition. Learn more and register your beers through January 31st, 2024 by visiting bestofcraftbeerawards.com slash register. After a storied career in beer, Terry Farndorf recently entered a working retirement. She's helmed breweries, judged competitions around the world, and she founded the Pink Boot Society, which she then ran for nearly a decade. She's been a safety advocate, an outspoken critic, historian, and sounding board in her more than 30-year career. After countless brew days and then a turn selling raw ingredients, she's focused today on her art, crafting pottery from her studio in the Pacific Northwest. It's another creative outlet for this one-time computer programmer who forged a career through determination and will when the craft brewing industry was still in its infancy. She joined me in early January 2024 to share some stories, insights, more of which can be found on her blog and website, which is terryfarndorf.com. She isn't leaving beer completely. She says she still plans to judge competitions and stay involved in various other ways. But for the first time since the 1980s, beer is not her primary job. And this seems like a good time for an introspective. Here's our conversation. I know this is well-worn territory, but since you haven't been on this particular show before... And as you uh, get into this working retirement that, that you're in right now, um, I'd love to go back to the beginning, uh, however brief or long you'd like that to be, and, and ask you what drew you into the beer industry to begin with. Well, it could be a long story or a short story, and I will try not to make it too long because I tend to apparently love to talk about my history. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, honestly, I come from a German-American family, and I was raised in Wisconsin. 
And beer is a part of the you culture. Had, you had no other choice. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> beer is a part of the culture. Had I known in high school that you could go into beer as a profession, I probably would have gone into that first. But um, that they don't allow beer people into high schools, which I think is a real problem because when you encourage someone to go into the beer industry, you're basically talking STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and math. And what is wrong with that? And add on top of that business, because beer is a business too. So um, we used to have beer with pizza nights at home every now and then. Um, I remember as a Girl Scout, uh, we got taken on a couple of tours. I remember a tour of a McDonald's. I also remember a tour of the Miller Brewing Company, which one do you think had a bigger impact on me? Definitely <laughs> the brewery tour. Yes. And um, I remember being nine years old. Uh, this was a long time ago. And we got a dime for weekly allowance. And we went to the church rummage sale. And I found a little booklet probably put out by Miller Brewing Company on how beer is made. And I bought it for my dime. And I was pretty excited. And I got home and I looked at it. And I was crushed because it said you needed mash presses and all these big machines and apparently beer was only made in a factory well as we now know beer is not necessarily made in a factory but i but that was what i thought at, at nine years old so fast forward to college i made homemade wine in college fast forward some more i landed in california at a job as a computer programmer in the 1980s and wine was pretty cheap so i switched to home brewing beer Homebrewed beer for about three years, and by then I was really tired of my cubicle life as a computer programmer. I don't sit still well. I really like to be on my feet moving around. Um, cubicle life is just really not my thing, although I've done it multiple times, but that, I, that wasn't working for me. But back in those days, you had to wear a suit to work. So you saved up money and you bought a suit on layaway in those days. And when you had five <laughs> suits, one for each day of the week, then you could save money for a vacation. If you had a little money beyond your rent, your car payment and your student loan payment. So I took my first vacation in 1988, but it had to be inexpensive. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to attend the American Homebrewers Conference. It's in Denver. My sister lives there. I can stay with her and borrow her car. So at that pivotal event in June of 1988, I met certain people, Charlie Papazian, Michael Jackson. Those are the big famous ones. Greg Noonan. Um, I met John Meyer, who was then the brewmaster at Alaskan Brewing Company in Juneau, Alaska. Later, yeah. he became a very famous brewmaster at Rogue Brewing in Newport, Oregon. Um, any rate, and in addition to attending the Homebrewers Conference at the time, the Great American Beer Festival was included in the conference uh, uh, registration. So all of a sudden... Like uh, everybody who attended the conference is attending this Great American Beer Festival. 1988, it had only been going on, I think, for, oh, I don't know, four or eight years. Not very long. No, not, yeah. Not, not very long at all. And so, um, so the judges back in those days, there was only a handful of them, and they brought the judges' pitchers of beer off the floor. Nobody bottled and sent beer earlier. And um, at the end of the GABF, all of the medal winners got on stage together at the same time. 
that I'm talking all of yeah. the ABF medal winners. There's about 25 of them or something got on stage at the same time. And one of them was Melly Pullman. And she's about my size. In fact, she's exactly my size because we've met. And uh, she was the brewmaster at Sheriff Brewing Company in Park City, Utah, making Wasatch, Wasatch Ales after the Wasatch Mountains there. And she won a medal. And I thought, if she can do the job physically, so can I. And when I was speaking to John Meyer, he had been a home brewer as well. And he had also been a aircraft engineer at Hughes Aircraft in Los Angeles. And I thought, if he can go from high tech to brewing and survive financially, so can I. So having these role models, which is really important, and we'll talk about role models later when we talk about Pink Boots Society. But to me, it's so important to basically see someone else doing what you want to do, someone you can identify with, that you can envision yourself in their shoes. And so having figured out that if John Meyer can do it financially and survive, and Melly Pullman can do it physically and survive, I could be a brewmaster too. Wow. So I made my decision that weekend before I even went home that I was going to pursue, pursue a brewing career. And John Meyer and a couple, and another person that I had met had attended this school in Chicago called the Siebel Institute. So we did not have the internet then. So the only two schools that I knew about that taught brewing, one was the Siebel Institute in Chicago, and the other one was University of California at Davis, UC yep. Davis. And at UC Davis, it would have been a master's program. They didn't have their other programs then. And I had a degree in business and computers. So to attend UC Davis, they were both going to cost about the same amount of money. UC Davis, however, would have taken at least two years because I would have had to catch up with food science courses, whereas the Siebel Institute was 12 weeks, super expensive. In fact, attending the Siebel Institute cost the same amount as my entire student loan from my five years at university. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, writing out that check was actually it cost exactly half as much as my entire university, you know, everything from university, exactly half as much. (laughs) And so uh, um, I put my student loan on delayed or whatever. And um, and I had a little bit of money saved and it all went to uh, Siebel and I had nothing left over. But at least I could get out of Siebel in 12 weeks and start looking for a job. So I would not have the um, lack of income for two years that UC Davis would have required. Yeah. So I got out of school and there was only, as far as I know, four craft brewer types who attended Siebel before myself. Um, I attended Siebel and uh, the night before classes started, they had a little... Uh, get together so the students could meet each other and we all went around meeting each other and the question that the other students kept asking me was what brand do you brew and I my reply was I don't brew brands I brew styles and every single one of them said styles what's that and so I thought oh my gosh because everybody but me was coming out of a large brewery and um, interesting okay yeah i was paying my own way and two guys who had been laid off when the steak brewery in uh bellevue illinois had shut down they were paying their own way because they wanted to get jobs at anheuser-busch 
in St. Louis, which is right across the river. Mm-hmm. Everybody else, everybody else was uh, being sent by their companies, so they all were like going out to eat, and, you know, because they were on on account on on an expense account, and I was not. So I stayed with an old college buddy who had just um, bought a condo in Chicago, and he had a spare room, and so um, my room was a. Uh, blanket with a sleeping bag on top a lamp on the floor and then i had a cardboard box turned upside down and that was my desk and uh, where i could study for siebel i had no furniture so i borrowed a a car from my parents that winter or for those 12 weeks i should say it did snow and i attended (laughs) siebel and i started organizing things i said do you guys have i said you guys are a brewing school are we going to do a class brew i mean do you have like brewing equipment here. Oh, we have some five gallon equipment. I said, can we make a class brew? And they're like, yeah, sure. What do you want to make? So I thought, well, I've always wanted to make a lager because I did not have refrigeration equipment at my home brewing, you know, with my yeah. home brewing equipment. And honestly, I had only home brewed 15 batches and they were all extract batches with some augmentation from, from grains from caramelized and, and roasted grains. And um, one of my friends who was an all-grain brewer, you said, you, you have to come over an all-grain brew with me before you go to Siebel. And I said, okay. So that was it. So at any rate, um, and I asked them, do the instructors know how to brew on it? Yep. I said, great, because you know I, I don't have that much experience with all-grain brewing. So I asked the class, who wants to brew with me? And um, a few of them did. And so... Uh, so they said, what kind do you want to make? And I thought, oh, geez, I really like Celebrator Double Vock because, of course, this was back in the day when imports were king. Oh, yeah. And so I thought, I want to make Celebrator. So I said, I said, how about a Double Vock? And they all go, sure. And I thought, oh, my God, they've never had one. This is going to be rough. So I brought in the Celebrator Double Vock, and I said, try this. See if you want to make it. And one guy on my team said, he was from Southern Illinois, and he said, this tastes like goat piss. And I said, first of all, you don't even know what goat piss tastes like. And second of all, it does not. And I thought, well, <laughs> double balk is out. And so I mean, at least he had the animal right. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Oh my god, goat piss. And so, so then I thought, well, we'll make we'll make an Oktoberfest Meritzen style. And we were heading up to Schreier Malting for a tour, which is now part of Rar Malting. It's it's their plant, Rar's plant, mm-hmm. and. Um, Kurt Decker, who was was our instructor and was then the president of Schreier, he gave me some Munich malts. So we made a class brew. I also organized um, a beers of the world tasting. So I went to the you know the local liquor store, which is where you bought imported beers in Chicago, and I bought up all different styles. And I held a beers of the world tasting for my class because I thought these people cannot go to Siebel and graduate in twelve weeks with no knowledge of world beer style. This is insane. So at any rate, everybody came and they all were shocked. That was fun. And then also there were um, three brew pubs in Chicago at the time. I don't remember the names of all of them. The only one that survived that time was Goose Island. And uh, the other two um, didn't. And so uh, I organized carpools and we all went there. So, <laughs> so then when the instructors said, Oh, um, you guys have to pick a class president, you know, and, and my Canadian friends were then friends with mine from Molson. They said, we're going to nominate you for president. 
I said, I don't need to be president. That's like an ego trip. I said, I'll be vice president. You want you guys to be president? They said, no, you're organizing everything. They said, we're going to make, we're going to nominate you. And uh, the guy who said that Doppelbach tasted like goat piss, he ran against me. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's interesting. And he was, he was uh, voted to be class mascot. So there you go. And I was, I was voted in as Siebel's uh, first female uh, class president in Siebel history. Woo and, um, and that was the first of many firsts that I have had in my career. So it's been an amazing career. And that is how I ended up in the beer industry. Um, what was was basically attending Siebel. And I thought, worst case, I can fall back on computer programming. But by golly, I don't want that. So I worked really hard to make sure I could get into the beer industry. And uh, if you want me to go on th from there, I can. Otherwise, I'm, I will I'm, turn it back over to you, John. I'm just I'm just amazed that for as expensive as Siebel was and prestigious as it was, you come in with all of these ideas and they're like, sure. And it sounds like it, it almost never occurred to them for half of these things or to have the equipment or to have it, it, it sounds knowing Siebel as I do now. And I, I, I haven't taken classes there, but I visited and I, I I've spoken with countless graduates over the years. Um, it, it seems like they were lucky to have you when they did. Well, I'm sure I've had an impact there because I'm sure they started doing the beers of the world tasting after that. At the time I attended 1988, you have to remember, it, it feels like to me in my memory that there were about 50 regional and national breweries in the United States and about 50 craft breweries. I swear those are the numbers, although I know that's not true. Um, the average I, IBU in a beer was probably 10 or 12. You know, 10, yeah, 11 or 12. Um, I remember uh, that Siebel at the time was also an analytical firm. And they, uh, I would always stay after class and study in the library there. And um, because, I mean, a lot of the things in the class was not really on the level I could really relate to because they were all basically, let me say this at the time, Siebel, the Siebel diploma course was a finishing school kind of for people who already employed in breweries. So at the very beginning of Siebel, like in the 1880s, the, the diploma program was a two-year program because nobody went to college back then, hardly anybody. So the breweries had to actually pay to send whoever they wanted to be brewmaster to attend Siebel for two years. And it was literally their version of university. By 1966, and I know this because I met a brewmaster who attended in 1966. It was a six-month program. So Dale Bruro was at one time the brewmaster at Walter's Brewing Company, uh, sorry, Line and Kugel's Brewing Company in um, uh, Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. And because I had gone to college up in that area, I later went up there for a tour because when I went to college, I didn't have a car. Um, so I went up there dirt while I was at Siebel, and I called the brewer and it was Dale Burrow. And he said, I attended Siebel in 1966. It was a six month program. He said, I had, I had, you know, maybe an associate's degree. He didn't have a college degree. And so that was what you did. By the time I attended 1988, it was a 12 week program. And I remember the instructor saying, um, oh my gosh, 
we have this beer. It was the hoppiest, most bitter, most IBU beers we'd ever seen. I thought, what was it? Anchor Liberty. It was 45 IBU. It's four <laughs> times as much as any other beer on the planet, they were thinking. You know, it was shocking to them. Um, if you remember who David Ryder was, he was the R&D brewmaster at Miller for many years. But before that, he was actually the registrar at Siebel when I attended there. I mean, we're going way, way back in 1988. So, you know, it, it, they weren't getting, well, they did get, they did get a lot of students from overseas, but not from Europe. Um, the international students that were there there was my one of my friend from Guatemala. I met him there. There were uh, people from Panama and Seoul, Korea and India, but mostly Asia and South America. Um, Coors had some people there, but Coors couldn't uh, afford for the time for them to be gone for 12 weeks. Sure. So they would send them for one third of a class each year for three years. And, um, like there was a fellow in the class and he was the packaging manager, but they wanted to move him up into upper management, but he had worked his way up in the packaging department. All he knew was that I'm putting liquids in packages and I got to keep it sanitary. He knew nothing about beer. He did not know how beer was made. He knew nothing. So you that's what the breweries would do. They would send a guy like that who worked his way up from like the factory floor practically and, the, and then they wanted to put them into upper management, they would send them to Siebel as a finishing school. Siebel had nothing to do with the craft beer industry at the time compared to now. Um, as I said, there were four people in the craft beer industry that attended before myself. I mentioned John Meyer, uh, Dan Carey of New Glarus Brewing attended before me. Mm -hmm. um, Jamie Emerson from Full Sail, Sail Brewing attended before oh, sure. me. And a guy named Don Outerson, who was involved with some breweries in Cleveland, and now I think he's with a distillery. Those were the four uh, people who put themselves through that came out of, let's say, the homebrewing world and did not come out of the national and regional beer world in the United States. It's very different now. Yeah. So uh, with that in mind, right, if, if you have all of these larger breweries sending, you know, existing folks in through this program mm -hmm. um, and, and you were not uh, cut from that cloth, once completing the degree there, what was the job market like? <laughs> As I mentioned, they were, in my mind, about 50 craft breweries in the United States. Now, I had always wanted to live in Oregon. Ever since I was a little girl and learned about the Oregon Trail, I have no idea why, but I always wanted to move to Oregon. In fact, I would talk about Oregon in college, and my roommate had a T-shirt made that said Oregon and Oregon or bust, like the old Canada, whatever, yeah. the wagon trains. And, and guys would ask me in a bar, does that mean you want to go to Oregon or you want to get a bus? And I thought, well, that's kind of crude, buddy, but whatever. Um, and so, you know, I don't know why. Sometimes I wonder if our future self sends us secret messages about where we need to be for our best future. And maybe my future self was telling me, you're going to be the, the right person to be in Oregon someday. So anyway, I wanted to go to Oregon and I was living in California and so um, I got out of Siebel 
And um, I had packed up all my stuff in order to go there. I was basically gone for Labor Day weekend uh, at the beginning of September through Christmas. And then I came back and then looking for a job in January in the craft beer industry in 1989, that would be then, um, not so many of them around. So what I did is I took my 19, you know, my old uh, 1985 Honda Accord, which I drove for 22 years, but I took that and my pet bird and a suitcase and I had a coworker that lived in Portland and I drove from the Bay Area to Portland and at every single brewery that existed, craft brewery that existed, and every single homebrew shop on the way, I stopped and dropped off a resume. And I'd, what I said was, if you know of any craft brewery, they weren't craft breweries then. I, we're going to have right, to read the microbreweries. Yeah. Okay. It wasn't about, I got to talk about craft breweries for a second. Okay. It wasn't about the beer, it was about who made the beer. So part of the microbrewing movement was sticking it to the man. You know, um, we made beer they didn't make, but it was really about the scrappy small business owners, not about the beer. And so once though some of those small scrappy microbreweries, it was beer. It was beer or beer or beer. It was beer from a microbrewery. And once those small breweries, some of them got so big that they didn't feel micro anymore, well, they pushed to change the name to craft brewery. But when it becomes about the beer, anybody can make it. It's just about do the big breweries want to make it? I mean, it only costs them not much more than their regular beer. It's all about the marketing and the packaging for them. So um, anyway, so I kind of wish that we had kept that term, microbreweries. And besides the fact, if all beer is craft brewed beer, it's just beer. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> so anyway, so I've, so I've made that argument in the past, but I, yeah, I agree with you, but yeah. yes. So anyway, uh, I, I visited every craft microbrewery. See, they got me programmed now <laughs> every microbrewery and every Humber shop. And they'd say, we're not hiring. I said, that's okay. If you hear of anybody opening a, a new brewery, a craft brewery, a microbrewery, um, please pass my resume forward. And so I wouldn't, I made everybody take it. So, uh, and then when I got to Portland, where I was hoping to end up either at Eugene or Portland, um, I asked all the breweries in Portland to give me a informational interview. I mean, it's January. Everybody's small. I mean, at the time, what was it? The brewing company in Mendocino Brewing. What was it? In Hopland, uh, California, Mendocino Brewing Company. I mean, they were like 500 barrels a year. You know, everybody was so small. Um, and so... Uh, and of course they say they're not hiring, but I just want to find out what are you looking for? You know? Yeah. So um, I ended up, um, I ended up, I ended up down in, in Berkeley, California at a brewery that they received. They had gone out of business uh, through bankruptcy. Some other people took them on, uh, whatever, bought it out of bank. We're trying to bring it out of bankruptcy. And um, they, the general manager there received two copies of my resume and he didn't know it was a physical job, which was the beef everybody seemed to have back in those days. And um, he figured out, came he said, you come highly recommended. I got two copies of your resume. I'm like, <laughs> awesome. And, um, and I was the only one that had brewing school because I mean, I, when I lived in the San Francisco Bay area, 
I belong to a homebrew club called the San Andreas Malts. And they just celebrated, I think, their 40th anniversary last year. And uh, and I was the only uh, woman club member who wasn't somebody's spouse. Um, but they, um, uh, about 10 of us went pro right around that time in 1988, 89. And um, they all could do it without going to brewing school, but I figured nobody would hire me without brewing school because sometimes you got to use your brain over your brawn and people just, you know, they didn't have confidence in my ability to do it, the job. So it was great. Um, I, I learned a lot at Siebel, but I ended up at uh, Golden Gate Brewing Company in Berkeley that went out of business two, two months later. It's a long story. Won't go there, <laughs> but um but that's fine because I landed on my feet over at Triple Rock and Triple Rock was phenomenal. That was the best brewing school I could have asked for, for the hands-on uh, knowledge that I gained there. And um, from there, after a year and a quarter there, I was able to get a job up in Eugene, Oregon at Steelhead. So I finally made it to Oregon. I love that. Um it- It, it 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 seems like throughout like there were there were paths available uh for anybody who is willing to put the work in and i and i think that that's probably still true um for brewers today there's just more more options or more places um where you, where you can put that um but i mean the hurdles of back then were just I, I don't know. I, I, you must have conversations with brewers today about now versus then. Um, and and you created a path for so many um, brewers that followed you. But um, I, in thinking about those early days, um, would you start over again? Would you still do it? Oh yeah. It was the it was the the best time of my life. I mean, yes. Sure sure there were hurdles. I mean, there weren't very many breweries, but also a lot of people who loved home brewing were making good money and weren't willing to take the pay cut that it took to go there. I mean, there was a major pay cut involved. Um for sure. And um I mean, these people are all friends of mine now, uh but at the time when they didn't know me and I was looking for a job, I would get asked funny questions like, can you carry a full half barrel up a flight of steps? And the thing is, is that women are very clever. Um, We'll figure out a way to do it. Um, I'm happy to see that people are asking better questions now because the question shouldn't be, can you carry a full half barrel of beer up a flight of steps? Or can you lift this 55 pound bag over your head into the, the grist hopper? The question should be, there's a there's a keg of beer, it's full. It's the bottom of these steps. How would you get it to the top of the steps? A woman would figure out a way to do it that would be the safest way and it would not injure someone's back. And not only could a woman of any size do it, but an old guy who's already wrecked his knees and his back from trying to um, physical, physically, you know, whatever finesse is the wrong word, but physically do the job by just, you know, muscling through it all the time. A woman would figure out a way to do that. 
You know, you want that grain from ground level up into the hopper? Great. I get some cinder blocks and some boards and I get a 50, uh, I get a five gallon bucket, pour half the grain into the five gallon bucket. I make two steps. The mill's not that fast. I could do it in the same amount of time. What? So um, I always tell people that whenever people are asking if you can do the job their way, they're at, they're at, they're basically asking the wrong question. What they need to know is what's the best way you know, what way would you do this job? And it will be the safest. And if you want to have a safe brewery, probably one of the smartest things you could do is ask a woman brewer to do a safety audit on your brewery and to basically look at the way your your young physical guys are doing all the jobs that are wrecking their knees and their backs. So, so sure, there. but I will say that back then the breweries were small. Some had one brewer, some had two brewers. So you weren't, there wasn't any breweries hardly that had like a staff of brewers. That was just unheard of. A staff of brewers meant that you were one of the big guys, you know, or one of the big regionals or whatever. Um, pretty much everybody that I knew uh, in the San Andreas Malt Homebrew Club who went pro that year, we all got jobs as head brewers or brewmasters, if you want to call us that. And uh, I do call people a brewmaster if they know more about beer than anybody else who works at that place. But some people nowadays are not comfortable with that term unless they've apparently studied in Germany for four years um, or whatever, had 20 years of experience. But at that time, if you were a home brewer who went pro, um, you could call yourself a brewmaster if you knew more about beer than anybody else who worked there. And if you were the boss in the brewery, you were the brewmaster. So, I, yeah. so, so we'd have ourselves or an assistant and really, um, other than me, if you were a guy with some strength and you had a pulse and you knew, and you'd been homebrewing for a few years, you could maybe get a job at a brewery. Um, I mean, some of them were owned by the people who wanted to brew and some of them weren't. Um, but mostly even the ones that were owned by brewer, by brewer, by homebrewers, those homebrewers who were the owners needed to run the business. So they would hire one of their friends from the homebrew club to actually do the brewing. It's easier to train someone to brew than to train someone to run your business. I, I, I want to go back to, to something that you said and that at, at the risk of um, phrasing this in an, in, in an indelicate way. Um, yeah. Some of the questions you, you were getting back then you you said you know that they were funny questions but it it, it, it sounds like in, in some cases they were also sexist questions or mis questions that were dripping in misogyny it, well, is that is that fair the one about carrying a half barrel of beer up a flight of steps the fellow who asked me that question uh is a friend of mine now and you know and these guys are friends and and if they if i were to ever remind them of this they would probably argue they couldn't possibly have said it but at the time, they had never met a woman brewer. They had never heard of one, thought of one, dreamed of one, could visualize one, none of that. And so this fellow, uh, there was a small chain of, of brew pubs. And um, and so he asked me this question over the phone. And I said, no, I cannot, I could not carry a full half barrel of beer up a flight of steps. But nobody should, because that's 180 pounds just in the beer or something, I yeah. think it was. Uh, not including the the weight of the keg itself. So I would get a hand truck and I could 
slide it up the steps with the hand truck or I would get a um I would I would throw some boards down and make a slide and I'd get a winch at the top and a net and I could winch the keg up. I said there's multiple ways to get the kegs up keg up the top of the steps. And he said, Well, I'm sorry, but I require all of our brewers to be able to carry a full half barrel of beer up a flight of steps. It's not even worth us talking. Now what's hilarious about this particular question and this particular guy is that two years later I'm brewmaster at Steelhead because I was I was brewmaster at um Triple Rock in Berkeley for a year and a quarter and then uh, I got hired up at Steelhead because I really wanted to get to Oregon and um I was there for the whole you know tank installation construction everything and then I got all my beers ready to go meanwhile they're finishing out uh the pub where the the seating and the tables and the tiles and whatever, everything, the decor on the walls, the lighting. And so this guy was in town. And so I invited he and the local brewer from this particular chain over because all my beers were already on draft. I said, why don't you come over and try my beers? They're on. And the guy came over, I'm sure thinking, oh, women can't brew beer, whatever. And he sat down, he tried all my beers and he almost you know, choked. And he said, wow, your beers are really good. I said, mm-hmm. I mean, my whole goal was to, um, I mean, they were better than his brewer's beers over at that chain, to be honest. <laughs> and my whole goal uh, among my career forever, because I am competitive, is to raise the bar. Wherever you go as a brewer, raise the bar, make better beer than whatever is being made there. Now, Portland's an awesome beer town, so I don't think that's possible anymore. But at the time in Eugene, Oregon, there was one other brewery and we were the second brewery. Steelhead was the second brewery. And I raised that bar and I had homebrewers coming in and they were jokingly chiding me saying, I used to homebrew and I had a, I got a kegerator and I got these Cornelius cans and your beer is so good. I don't think it's worth me brewing anymore. I said, well, bring your Cornelius's in. You know, at the time we'd fill them for 35 bucks to fill a Cornelius. And so I had to bring in your kegs. And so, <laughs> there were more than one home brewer who stopped home brewing when when I came to to town at in Eugene. I like that. Um, you've brought up safety a couple of times, um, and 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 I feel like any conversation with you um, needs to address you know the utmost importance of safety in the brewing industry. And I know you've shared your your story multiple times, but also been an advocate for. Um, other folks coming into the industry and and being in the industry for best practices, um, you know, and 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 just ways of ensuring physical safety uh, when when working in and around a a, a beer making uh, space. Um, how do you rate where we are? with microbreweries, craft breweries these days, um, and safety or is there, it's obviously leaps and bounds better than it was, but is there still a lot of work to be done? A little work to be done? No work to be done. What's your, what's your take? Honestly, I'm not out and about visiting breweries as much as I was when I was doing, um, beer ingredient sales. Um, I believe that, the massive growth that we saw <laughs> between like 2009 and 2019 
something sure. in there. Yep. Um, I mean, we literally went from around a thousand or fifteen hundred breweries to nine or ten thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times, safety gets left behind when you see that kind of growth. Now, the fact that we're having a little hiccup in the industry and things have slowed down, I am hoping that uh, people get around to the safety issue. Um, if people listening to this don't know, um, I am a safety poster child in a way because I was severely burned at my first brewing job. And as uh, some of you may know, Chris Swerzy, who was the Great American Beer Festival judge manager and a former brewer for many, many years, he said, um, every brewer is a burned brewer. It may not have happened yet. And if there was a way that I could somehow wipe out all future burns from breweries, I would do it in a heartbeat because it is life changing in the worst kind of way. So um, the fact that people have been burned since I have been burned, I was burned in 1989. Um, the fact that people have been burned and burned worse than me and died from burns tells me that we don't have it right. Um, there, you know, when in, um, let me think about this for a second. In 2007, I was on a big road trip. We could certainly talk about that later. And I spoke at the um, American Brewers Guild out in Vermont. And I talked about safety and there was no deaths in the beer industry, in the craft, certainly the craft side of the beer industry at that point. And when I spoke about six years later, um, there were multiple deaths from safety issues. So uh, let's just say it got worse for a while. Is it getting better now? I'm not sure, but I, I don't see people taking it as seriously as I feel they should. Um, you know, there's still people who are, are not thinking about grain handling when they're designing their system and they're having, basically you want to touch and lift that grain as little as possible on the way in and the way out. Um, some people have thought about that. Some people have not. Um, I'm not seeing as many say brew pubs in small breweries, uh, putting in silos which definitely reduces your lifting loads. I'm not seeing as many people putting in augers. I mean, I saw a lot of small silos and augers back in the, say, early 90s and in the 90s. And and I, then people stopped doing it and they just started buying bags. Now, part of it is that people got more, brewers got more esoteric about their raw materials. And so instead of using, let's say, one base malt, for all their beers, they oh no, I have to have German Pilsner malt for this beer, and I have to have Scottish Golden Promise as my base malt for that beer. Honestly, you can make really great award-winning beers with even using one single base malt. I'm sorry, I hate to tell you, it's true, um, <laughs> but you know it, it, the 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 devil's in the details of the specialty malts, and those you do have to lift. So that's lifting issues, and that's a knee and a back issue. Burns, I mean, every brewery in this country could have a boil overflow device on their kettle. And what it does is that um, when the foam starts boiling up, um, as soon as the foam hits the probe, it makes an electric connection, and it cuts off the gas or the electricity or the steam, or however you are heating that kettle. Every kettle in this country, it should be mandatory, should have a uh, a boil uh, 
overflow prevention device that basically kills all the power. Um, yeah. Also, uh, another thing that helps with boilovers is kettle stack fans. Not only does it help with the boilovers, it helps with your beer. I mean, basically, if you're having DMS, which is a corn type of a flavor in your beer, then you need a kettle stack fan. And um, I've in every brewery I've designed, I put in kettle stack fans. Um, only one had the boilover prevention device, but that's because the boil was about a foot and a half from my face. Um, it was, you know, it was a short, it was just a shorty little thing. Um, and, and then, you know, there, there's other things as well. Um, uh, augers uh, can be mobile. Um, they can drop down from the ceiling. I mean, there's a lot of ways to do that. Uh, silos, like I said, small silos can fit on the roofs of buildings. You don't have to get 60,000 pounds. Here's the thing. Back when breweries were first starting, like in the late 80s, early 90s, nobody was trying to be the next Sierra Nevada, Sam Adams or whatever. I mean, everybody was just happy to have a brew pub and, and get top pint dollar and just you know, make a good living at it. Then all of a sudden, everybody wants to expand and they want to, oh, now we got to have all these tasting rooms. We got to supply all these places or whatever out of one giant brewery. Um, oh, and now we got to maximize. We got to have a great big space. And I'm thinking, you don't have to put in a brewery with that many tanks. I mean, I've seen a few in Portland that should have just been little, little tasting rooms, little tap rooms, little brew pubs or whatever. 10 or 15 barrel system and i've seen them go in and i'm thinking i know that brewer did he did that brewer want that that big you know the brewer might be a partner but i'm thinking i bet his money partners either the bank or whatever investors said go big or go home and so they end up putting in like i don't know a 30 barrel kettle even if a 15 barrel kettle then 30 60 you know, 120, 90, whatever barrel fermenters. This is insane, people. There is so much built capacity out there, and there's not enough customers to fulfill that capacity. You know, I mean, there's a lot of choices, folks. You know, there's hard ciders, <clears throat> you know, and, and then there's the packaging issue, too, because that costs more. So I get it. Oh, no, now, now to break even, we got to brew this much. You know, really what you want is a brew pub. <laughs> Sell your beer for full pint dollar on site. You know, I mean, you can make good money that way just owning a brew pub. Um, but you have then you have to hire someone to run your kitchen. Sorry, yeah. I got off track about safety there. No, I, I wanted you. I wanted you to drive that home. Every time I see a social media post where brewers are like doing an actual brew day, not just posing for for photos, uh, and they're in shorts and their boots. Oh my god. I I I, I think of you and I get freaked out. Yeah, you know, you know the uh, the uh, the safety issue that you walk past is the safety issue you're okay with. So if you walk past a ladder that somebody has like on a stool because they can't reach it with just the ladder, and you walk past it, you're okay with that guy breaking their neck. Then you got to say something to somebody. If you don't want to save the person up on the ladder, then you go find their manager. You know. Yeah. And I see brewers all the time in like freaking Tevas and shorts. And I'm like, mm -hmm, okay, you know, are you accepting of, of a burn injury? Because as I said, every brewer is a burned brewer. It just hasn't happened yet. Yeah. So you want to make it easy for your burns to happen or you want to make it hard for the burns to stick, you know? Um, and, and, and like there was a guy 
who was like a friend or something or a relative of the brewer. And they say, here, go throw these hops in. Well, the guy threw in the hops in the kettle and the kettle boiled over and killed the guy. This was like a visitor, for God's sakes. First of all, you don't have a boil over prevention device. You didn't check the kettle yourself and spray down the foam. And you don't have a kettle stack fan. What the hell is you even having visitors in that brewery if you don't have those safety features? I mean, there's, oh, I could just go on and on. No, I know. Anyway, there, you know, it's not hard to find the information. The Brewers Association has safety books and booklets. Uh, there's videos out there. Hell, you could just find me on Facebook, call me or something, and you could just tell me what you do and don't have, and I'll tell you what you need. Um, but another thing to think about is that um, defining, uh, when I worked for uh, a malt company, um, you know, we were very careful of, and learning about safety. So there's levels of safety. You know, what can you do that's uh, simple? Um, and then how much does it protect you? And what's the next level? What's the next level? And there were like four levels of safety. And um, we had to basically rate every single task in within the job. And in a brew day, there's a lot of tasks on the scale. And then we had to discuss how to reduce them. I don't know if any breweries that are going through that much trouble, but in our little pilot brewery, we literally did this. And then one of the tasks was it was it was a one barrel brewery, and um, the grist hopper was this little cylinder conical thing that you could fit maybe a hundred pounds into and had handles, and then two people were supposed to lift it on top of the mash tun, and then there was um, like a, a, a hydration collar. Where, where the water sprays into the grain as it's falling right beneath that. So you'd hook up your hose and your pump or whatever. And so um, the safety guy said, nope, not good enough. He said, find another way. So he did not want two people to lift this thing. And I'm like, okay. Now, every brewery that's starting up does not have a guy that says find another way. But I thought, okay, well, the only other way I can think of is we need an auger. Because, you know, we can't lift, we're not supposed to lift, you're really not supposed to lift anything above waist height, okay, right. for safety. And so um, this this thing was filled at waist height with the grain, but then we had to lift it higher than waist height to get it on top of the mash tun. So I thought, okay, we'll get an auger. So what I had is I had a little portable auger made, and it was awesome. And the hopper was at the same height as a rolling cart. So we put the bags of grain on the rolling cart, you know, and, and they came off the shelf, which were all about waist height. So the grain was stored at waist height, went onto the rolling cart at waist height, and then it was just opened up and then tipped into this thing, everything at waist height. And then the auger augered it up. It worked like a charm. And so, um, you know, I suppose I should be like a safety consultant for small breweries, but I don't want to go there. I, I hope that every brewer listening right now is furiously writing down notes about how to um, yeah. improve their spot. Um, I, I, I want to switch gears if I can. Yes. Um, to obviously the pink boots and where the organization is now versus what it was when you had the idea for it to begin with. Um, but like how, how it lives in your mind with what it's become. Okay. 
Well, um, I should tell your audience a little bit about what it is and why okay. I started it, maybe, just because they may never have heard of Pink Boots Society. If, if, if they haven't, shame on them. But yes, okay, please. <laughs> well, I'll be brief. So um, Pink Boots Society was is basically an organization. It started as a list of women brewers in 2007 when I was on a road trip across country. I blogged it at roadbrewer.com. And it was basically a five-month trip where I visited every brewery that invited me pretty much um, and uh, during the weeks. And on the weekends, I'd visit mine or my husband's relatives or whatever. Uh, no no real vacation. Uh, and I blocked the whole thing because people kept asking me for email updates. And I figured that I don't, I don't want to do that. And I didn't know how to write a blog, but I figured it out. And so on the first week when I was on that trip, I did stop at Stone Brewing and they said, you're going to work with Laura Ulrich. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know there was a Laura here. And she had never heard of me. Now, at the time, I had been a brewmaster for 19 years. And I had been running Steelhead, you know, five locations. We'd won 24 Great American Beer Festival medals. And people hadn't heard of me. This woman had never heard of me. And, um, and I had never heard of her. And so we were chatting at dinner. And it became real clear to me that she needed to connect with other women. Now, most of my life, I've had men friends. And there's times in my life where more of my friends have been male than female. And so I, I was perfectly at home um, having all male friends. But not every woman is like that. And, you know, I just pretend I don't understand the crude jokes. And I pretend they went over my head. We all get along great. Um, but other women might take some of those jokes personally and feel... Uh, out of place. And so um, uh, I just felt like Laura needed a mentor. And by golly, I wanted to mentor her. And her question to me was, Terry, um, you tell me that there are other women brewers out there. How many of us are there? And I said, I don't know. I'm going on this trip and I will count to the best of my knowledge. By the time I got to the East Coast, another woman asked me the same question and I had an answer. 60 women on my list and this was from people telling me, oh, don't forget, you know, Sister Doris in Germany. And so there were a few international ones on that list, too. And that woman said, really, 60? Who are they? I want to know because I want to talk to them. I want to network. I want to contact them. And I was like, oh, is that where that's going? So I put the list up on my website. And then um, – uh, I got home from that trip, and then soon enough, there was a craft brewers conference happening in San Diego, where Laura was the first woman, and uh, went. To, I, I called her a month in advance and said, hey, the craft brewers conference is going to be down in San Diego in your neighborhood. Should we try to get the 60 women on the list together? She said, yes, let's do it. She and another gal down there organized it. It was amazing. Um, I had male beer writers and journalists such as yourself asking, can I attend and cover it? Because uh, a group of all women brewers was going to be totally historic. And I said, no, send a woman because we don't know what it feels like to have a room full of estrogen in the beer industry. And we need to feel what that what that feels like. So we met and the women were so excited and we were tasting each other's beers I noticed that the dialogue about the beers was very different from what I was used to in a room that was all men. And so um, 
they had a podium and a microphone. So I said, hey, ladies, we're going to vote on some things. I mean, this was all kind of spontaneous. I didn't know they were going to have a podium and a microphone, but I took advantage of it. And and we're going to vote, they said. I'm like, yeah. I said, um, do you want to be a list online or a group or what do you guys all want with this pink boots thing? Because by then I had named it. And um, and they said, uh they voted, they passed around the microphone, we talked, and they decided to be an organization. And I said, okay, I don't know what that means, but I might need help. Because uh, it sounds like more work <laughs> than just trying to find <laughs> names to put on a list. And so I said, second question, who are we, ladies? And they said, well, Terry, look around. We're women brewers. I said, look again. There are six women beer writers in this room, and they have all asked to join. And I said, and I have received emails from other women in the beer industry. Um, um, a, a lab manager, a female lab manager, and a female packaging manager, among others. So there was quite a bit of discussion, including should men be allowed to join this organization? And um, when they finished voting, uh, they voted that we stood for three things, women, beer, professionals. Now, what's interesting is in the 17 years going on, let's see, we started in 07. Yep. 17 years this year uh, that Pink Boots has been around, um, those three things, we have redefined them. So women has now been expanded to women and non-binary. Um, beer has now been expanded to all fermented beverages. Beer, wine, sake, cider, kombucha, um, spirits, and any future fermented beverages I haven't thought of yet. Somebody will probably invent it. Those will be, those are all in there. And then professionals has, it used to be if you just earned some money on an ongoing basis, $5 a month would be fine. Now that's been redefined that we need you to have some skin in the game to be considered a professional. You can't just sell a couple of beer cap earrings on Etsy every month. You know, basically it has to be 25% of your income. And so that is how Pink Boot Society has changed. And I think it's great. Um, you know, obviously, we've had more of a background with beer. So more of our members are beer. We're at a, over 2,800 uh, members. Um, I got some new, I don't, here's the thing. I'm not on the board of directors after nine years of running it, mostly by myself with the help of some volunteers. Um, I fired myself because I was really burnt out. And as I had mentioned uh, once to somebody that I am more of an artist than an administrator. So I knew I wasn't the right person to grow it. Um, I considered all the, I consider all the Pink Boots members children, my children. So I have over 2,800 daughters, which is pretty awesome. And Pink Boots is my first daughter. Uh, it, so that's pretty awesome too. And um, uh, And a lot of ideas come from the membership. The members who were in beer, but then switching over to wine or kombucha or cider or, or whiskey or whatever. They're like, hey, I want to maintain my membership. How can I do that if I'm not in beer? Well, we have to think about that. Then we expanded it. Um, and, uh, you know, we've had members who have changed their genders. Great. You can stay in it. As long, well, actually, as long as you stay a woman. <laughs> actually, if you're a male who has transgendered into being a female, great. Well, then you're fine. It's usually that direction that are our members, of course. Um, anyway, chapters came out of the membership 
uh, desires too. They're like, hey, I want to hang out with my local members, but I don't really know who they are because I can only connect with them online. But we want to get together locally. We want to form a chapter. So the first chapter was formed in Northern California. Um, Alexander Noel, who is now a three weavers, I believe it was her idea or mm -hmm. her and her chapter. So the uh, the San Francisco area chapter was the first chapter as far as I know. And now, now there's like, I don't know, 80 or something in about 40 countries. And we have, we have members that don't have chapters, but I mean, almost every country is represented, China, Palestine, Israel, you know, we probably have members in Ukraine, you know, all the hotspots. I love that. And I, 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 it's just the way that it started and to have a global movement like that now. Um, it, 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 again, it sort of seems like right place, right time and right idea and right follow through in that moment. Exactly. And we had some we had some dead ends for us. You know, we we took on education right away um, at our second meeting, which was during uh, the Great American Beer Festival in 2008. We had 35 members attend that meeting. And I I said, well, let's vote again. And so um, we voted to become a nonprofit and to raise money for scholarships because, you know, I. After we decided to become an organization, I went home and I have this catch, I call it the thinking couch, and I and I lay down on it because I was like, oh my gosh, what does it mean to be an organization? I mean, I've never did this. I don't even know who to call for advice. So I didn't call anyone for advice. And, and it's not like there was, I could say, oh, it's just like that organization except for beer. Or, oh, it's just like that organization except for women. There was nothing like Pink Boot Society at the time. Now... There's Pink Boot Society. Other groups can say, oh, it's just like Pink Boot Society, except for black, you know, beer industry professionals or whatever. You know, there are there are other organizations that can point to big Pink Boot Society as kind of a guideline. But, um, you know, as I said, I'm not an administrator. It took four years to get the 501c3 uh, tax exempt nonprofit status from the IRS because I am not an administrator. Uh, my mother-in-law helped me write that 98-page application. Um, but also I thought, okay, if we're going to become an organization, you know, if we just throw a party every year, okay, here's the Big Boot Society having their annual party and whatever. You know, one, if we charge admission, what do we do with the money? And two, if we just have a party, it's just going to fall apart. So I strongly felt that we needed something, a goal that was bigger than all of us, that we could all get out of that cart and push it uphill, uh, that we could all get behind. And so that's where I came up with the scholarship program. It started with six scholarships. I think 2013 was the year that we finally got our 501c3 and I was able to to solicit money that would be, you know, tax deductible for the donors. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, uh, and so I put on my thinking cap once again, and I said, okay, you know, we're going to have six scholarships. We have at this point, who knows how many, 200, 500, however many members there were that year. And how are the other members going to benefit from the scholarship program if they didn't get a scholarship? First of all, we never call the people who receive a scholarship a scholarship winner 
because that kind of makes it sound like the other women who applied are the opposite of winners. And sure. There are no losers in Pink Boot Society. Trust me on that. They're go-getters. And so, um, and so that's where I came up with the Pay It Forward program, where if you receive a scholarship, you have to agree in advance that you will pay it forward somehow. Now, I think big. I When I'm on that thinking couch, I'm thinking really big. That's why Pink Boot Society is worldwide. That's why we have a pay it forward program to benefit not just the other members, but my goal is to benefit all of the beer industry as a whole. So my goal with that was that the recipients would pay it forward by writing a speech that they could give at the craft brewers conference or the master brewers conference or another conference, or they could write it for publication and get it published in new brewer magazine or brow belt or whatever. So as you can tell, if you think outside the box of what I'm saying right here, my goal was to fill the pipeline of speakers and writers with women so that there would be role models for everybody to read from and see and listen to so i mean it's it's a big picture thing um and so that is what's happening i mean i wouldn't say all the pay it forwards are happening at the craft brewers conference or in new brewer magazine but pink boot society now thanks to laura ulrich the woman that i mentioned from stone of course yeah yeah, she became the second president of Pink Boots after me. I, I ran it for nine years. She ran it for five years. Bless her heart. And um, and she, she was the one, she and the board at that time came up with the idea for a conference. So we have a biennial conference every other year. Uh, there's going to be one this June in Philadelphia, I believe it is. Oh, cool. Um, and um, anybody can attend it. Um, we have had men attend the conference. Um, because, and I asked the guy who came to one of them, I think it was Austin. I said, just got to ask you, why'd you come to this conference? He goes, one of them was close by. I could drive to it. And he said, two, it's a heck of a lot cheaper than the craft brewers conference. And he said, honestly, the quality of the speakers and the content is off the charts and I'm super pleased with it. So, um, the pink boots, uh, um, conference. All the speakers are women, and they're pretty much all Pink Boots members. And a lot of them are doing their pay it forwards. And the pay it forward is not tell me about your, you know, your uh, whatever your educational program experience, whatever you attended, your class experience. No, it's pick one thing in that class that really intrigued you. Let's say it's the Krebs life cycle in yeast. Okay, take what you learned in that class, go do some outside research and write a paper on it or write a poster for the MBAA National or whatever. Um, but I, you know, as the Girl Scouts say, we are creating tomorrow's beer industry leaders today through Pink Boots Society. And I want to see someday that those leaders of our beer industry, that half of them are women. And Pink Boots Society is doing that, dang it. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was brewer creativity and where it was when you first started versus you know, what it was uh, throughout your brewing career and then maybe what it could be. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear that, that question that you got early on of, you know, what's the brand you brew? Mm -hmm. um, when people weren't even talking about styles. And then obviously 
you know the style explosion and then well you know where we are now but i i i i wonder if you could just sort of walk me through where you see the importance of a brewer's creativity which i guess also is part of the commitment to the craft and the science and the you know, the quality and all of that and the art and the art yes <laughs> well um you know back in the day information was really really hard to get so um you were just like if somebody got a source or something you're like running to the library to make copies of it um at one time i had a collection of every article that mentioned microbreweries or microbrewing or microbrew beer out of out of every newspaper i could find i had like a three ring binder there were like hardly any articles they were hard to find uh at all and um so i collected them and uh you know fred eckhart up here in portland did listen to your beer a little newsletter oh, yeah. once in a while you would run into an issue of that and you're like oh my gosh i got an issue of this and and you subscribed in um zymergy i, I don't even know if new brewer magazine was going at that time and so information was really hard to find um, there was, is it called the Dearden Park Homebrew Club? There was a homebrew club in the UK of old guys uh, in London or thereabouts. And they were, they were historian homebrewers who would go to like the Bass Brewery or the Whitbread Brewery or whatever old breweries. And they would look through the old, old brewing books. Um, they were allowed to look through the ancient brew logs in the libraries and historical files of these breweries that have been around for centuries. And then they would convert those recipes to home brewing size. And then they would publish these little booklets. So I had one of the booklets, you know, uh, Byron Birch and uh, you know, the essentials of home brewing. And then Fred Eckhart's the essentials of beer style. There was, it was so difficult to find any information. So, um, you know, as far as creativity back in the day, um, you know, we as homebrewers, we were unafraid, just like homebrewers are unafraid now. Um, but our homebrewing was like, oh, my gosh, you know, we're going to use a bittering hop for dry hopping and see what the aroma is like. You yeah. know, so so that was kind of mild mannered. And then there was reproducing ancient styles. So you couldn't go to the store and buy an India Pale Ale. It wasn't there. Um, you know, Liberty was probably the closest thing we could find, but really the first modern IPA that I ever had was mine. I brewed it based on the information I found in Fred Eckhart's The Essentials of Beer Style. And he mentioned uh, Munich malts and Vienna malts. Now, I had formed a philosophy in my head that I would only use American ingredients because we didn't really talk about it much, but the first brewery that I was employed by, um, I had I had an injury there. I had my burn injury because yeah. of some lack of training in a very poorly designed brewery. And um, and they bounced my paychecks even before the injury, a whole bunch of craziness. And so I thought, you know, I don't want my owners to go out of business because of the beer ingredients. So I always used American ingredients to keep my costs down. And um, they, the, the quality did not suffer. I mean, you know, Steelhead earned 24 Great American Beer Festival medals. You know, that's 
nothing to sneeze at. No. And so, um, and so, uh, so, so then you would get ideas. You're like, okay, I'm going to use Chinook for dry hop because I love that hop as a dry hop. And, um, you know, I'm going to make an India Pale Ale and it needs to be about this strength. It needs to have these malts. And, and this is what I read in Fred Eckhart's book. Uh, the hops that he used were East Kent Goldings and Styrian Goldings, and the flavor they're getting is orange marmalade. Now, I had already restricted myself to American ingredients, so how am I going to do that? Well, you know, I'm getting some grapefruit pineapple characteristics from the hops I'm using, which at the time was Chinook Centennial and um, Mount, uh, what was it? Mount Hood. Mount Hood hops. Um, I never used Cascade in an IPA and I never used any crystal malt. Crystal malt does not belong in an IPA, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And there was a big phase where everybody's putting crystal malt in their IPAs except for me. And now I don't think anybody puts crystal malt in their IPAs again. Um, (laughs) But, um, and uh, again, I hope brewers are furiously taking notes. And and it was so, thank you. It was so funny because my friends um, who had come out of home brewing as well, they're like, what? You can't make an IPA with American ingredients. That'd be like making a German Pilsner with American malt. And I said, well, I'll do that too. And they're like, no, you can't. You have to use German malt in the Pilsner. You have to use British malt in the IPA. And I'm like, no, I I can't because I've made myself this restriction because I never want to go through another business of another brewery going out of business. I, you know, it's horrible. And, um, anyway, so, um, as far as I know, um, at Steelhead, I was the first brewer anywhere to put an American IPA on draft as an everyday standard flagship on draft every day. And that was January 22nd, 1991. And that was way ahead of Bridgeport or anybody else who was making American style IPAs. Um, and it was called Bombay Bomber IPA. And it, it had a cult following, although it never won a great American Beer Festival medal. And what I told people is I said, you know, you can't put a tiger in a cage and expect it to behave like a wild animal. You cannot put my Bombay Bomber in a bottle and expect it to taste like a Bombay Bomber with that grapefruit and uh, and pineapple aromas from those hops. And, and people come in and say, how do you get those aromas from the hops? And it was a fluke uh, in a way. Because Dan Carey, who I previously mentioned as sure. the master and owner at New Glarus Brewing Company, at the time in 1988, uh, or actually this was at this point, this was in 1990, he was working for JV Northwest, a tank manufacturer based in Portland. And that's where the tanks that were coming to Steelhead were being made. And Dan Carey specced our system and he specced an oversized heat exchanger. And I could knock out. 10 barrels, knockout meaning chill it. I could chill that 10 barrels down to pitch temperature in 10 minutes. So a barrel a minute through the heat exchange and then pitch my yeast. And I used a, um, I used a wide yeast. Uh, it was 1768, not 1968. And it was a Fuller's yeast from the UK, from London. But it was not the same route. So this was a friend of a friend had a culture and then a friend gave it to me and then I put it through three batches at Steelhead including a rye beer and I figured now it's going to have my house character and that was the yeast that I used it'd be great if anybody wanted to start using 1768 I now give you my permission I won 24 great American beer festivals with that yeast so it's no it's no snoozer um yeah, it's no slouch yeah 
Yep. Yep. And so, um, and so for creativity, you know, you would come up with ideas. Like I came up with this idea that I really wanted to do grains of the new, of the new world. And so what grains are grown in North and South America? And after I did that, perhaps I would go to like South Africa or something, other new world, new world, not Europe grains and uh, do a whole series of beers with that. I didn't get very far. I got to amaranth and I got to wild rice. Um, but that's as far as I got with that one. But that would have been a fun, um, you know, seasonal specials. I mean, a lot of people, there was a while in like, oh, the 2000s, 2010s, where people were opening breweries and doing, I'm never going to have any flagships. I'm only going to do one-offs. And I don't know if that's such a great idea. Certainly not anymore. And people may be turning away from that. But I think it's good to have your standards, um, whatever they may be. And I also think it's important, because this is just my creativity, that every beer on a sample sheet looks a different color. It should look different, not just smell different. I mean, I've gone to breweries, and I'll get a sample set of six, and they're all yellow. And I'm like, seriously, didn't we move away from that? I mean, I want to see a rainbow, because you drink with your eyes as well as with your taste buds, and every beer should smell different. Um, you can use the same yeast. If you want to, you could push it with different temperatures on the same yeast and get different yeast aromas. I mean, for a while, their yeast was kind of the new hops, right? Because hops were, uh, you know, in short supply. So people are experimenting with yeast, and I think that's wonderful. Um, different acidity levels. I mean, there's so many ways you could push yeast. Uh, yeast is so much more creative than wine. I think the winemakers are jealous. You know, winemaker can maybe blend different varietals, but then it's almost forced to be called a blend or a table a table wine. And um, I often buy the table wines or the blends because they're, they're often better than just the straight varietals because they allow the winemaker to actually have some creativity and say, oh, I'd really like some common yard to bring in some of those, you know, uh, deep red colors and some of those bolder characteristics. And I'll take some Cab Franc because I need a little earthiness in this particular wine. And so, you know, when you're out there buying wine, buy the blends, you know, because, oh, my gosh, some of them are so good. And um, but that's what we get to do as brewers that other um, beverage professionals don't get to do. Um, is that we get to experiment. There are so many hops out there and there's so many combinations. There are so many malts out there and you can stay within a country for your malts and make it work. Uh, you can stay with only a few yeasts or one yeast. I mean, for good proper yeast management, you need to be using that yeast all the time. You can't just let it sit in a can in your cooler. I just don't think that that the quality um, is going to stay. Um and, and, and you can really push those yeasts with temperature. Heck, you could even do some yeast blends if you wanted to mess around with that. Nobody says you can't. There are no none of those kind of rules that some of the whiskey producers and the wine varietal makers have to contend with. Um, you can mess with your water. Uh, there's a lot of information out there on water. Um, I've been super fortunate wherever I've been brewing has had really good water, especially Eugene, Oregon, where I spend most of my career. The water out of the faucet there is just sweet and delightful. It comes out of the Mackenzie River right out of the mountains. Um, all they do is let it filter through some sand beds and uh, add a little bit of chlorine. But if you're a brewer, fill up your hot water tank, let it sit overnight and the chlorine dissipates. 
it's gone. And by, so by the time you brew with it, there's no, no chlorine in that water. Um, as far as today, uh, the brewers today, certainly where I live in Portland, Oregon, are outstanding, super creative. Um, oftentimes they make so many seasonals that a lot of the seasonals are one-offs. And a lot of the one-offs, honestly, I'm not criticizing anyone because um, I can't even think of who I would criticize because they're all so amazing, all these brewers. Um, but sometimes I'm just saying a warning that sometimes your one-offs are just not going to be that good. So, yeah. I mean, it takes a while to refine your beer. I mean, the first it, Bombay Bomber I made was 8.1 ABV. I mean, people loved it. They got wasted on it. And um, and so what I did is I, I dropped the amount of pale malt by just taking less pale malt out of the silo, but I kept all the specialty malts the same. And when I adjust a recipe, that's what I would do is I would only change. I never change. Once I hit upon what I wanted for my specialty malts, um, I would just change the amount of base malt. I wouldn't change the amount of specialty malt and, and I could just fine tune it from there. Um, another thing that, that brewers need to keep aware of is that your suppliers know a lot. So if you're, I've known people, let's say, that are buying imported um, Munich malt and making, say, a dunkel uh, with 100% imported Munich malt. And it's really, really expensive. And, um, you know, I, I recommended to this one particular brewery, I said, you know, you could target the same color at simple math and try using basically some of the um, non-imported uh maybe dark Munich malts, uh, some of the really dark Munich malts. And we could have a whole program on how malt is made, but you should probably talk to somebody who's actually still working in the malt business for that. But, you know, I used to just, I used to be able to really explain to people how malt is made, different styles of malt, and how they're made is what basically gives you those styles of malt. Um, and so, because um, there's only about five different ways, for the most part, that malts are made. So a Munich malt is going to be di different from a crystal malt, and a dark Munich malt might not be called Munich. It might be called something else, like melanoidin or something. So I recommended they they try some base malt. That, that gets them onto a silo if they ever want to do a silo, and then some of the darker Munich-style malts. And I said try phasing in a little bit of that just so you can cut back on your expenses on the imported stuff because, you know, breweries are struggling now. They can't be paying all this money for imported malt, no matter how amazing they love that imported malt. You know, what's more important being like specifically regional specific about your raw materials and their source, even if it takes like a giant carbon footprint to get them here or to just make, the same thing with local ingredients that taste amazing and get it as close as your yeast, uh, which you can make locally or whatever, get, you know, source locally as close as your yeast and your water can get it. Um, when my friends, you know, the homebrewers would give me a hard time about making IPAs with all American ingredients. I would tease them back and say, are you actually getting your yeast shipped from over in Germany or the UK? No. Are you importing your water from the UK? No. I said, well, then what's wrong with using American malts and American hops if I can get as close as possible as I can, which I did, and it became a whole new style, American IPA. So back back to the creativity part of it. So um yeah. so at any rate, so so I you know, you have to you have to balance 
things. Use your creativity and go hog wild with your mind on how you want to design, say, a beer or something. But then bring in the realistic part. If you're not the owner, think about do you would rather would you rather have your next pay raise or would you rather use all imported ingredients? You know what I mean? Um, there was a fellow in a large city out west here. I'm not going to say where or whatever, um, but he was uh, the brewery name was his last name. And he because of that, I think he felt really attached to every beer and how it came out, which you should, whether your last name is the name of the brewery or not. Right. But his this is where he was coming from. He was coming out of home brewing. And when you're a home brewer and you walk into a homebrew store, you see all these different bins with all these different kinds of malts on it. You think it's like a Crayola crayon box and you could just play with any of these crayons, which is true at the homebrew level, because all those crayons are created equal at the homebrew level. But when you want to scale that and this fellow wanted to scale up and he was buying malt from one of the smallest producers of malt in Europe and the UK, that area. Um, and so he wanted to scale up and I said, it comes in 55 pound bags and that's it. Can't you get it in a silo? And I, no, you can't. I mean, it's a small producer one. Are they even going to be able to give you as much as you need for what you want to scale? I had, I had a brewer who was jumping from a three-barrel kettle to a 60-barrel kettle, which is a huge, they're not around anymore, neither is the other guy. But, I mean, that's just kind of an insane thing. And they were so creative when they were three-barrel, and they were having so much fun. So they they were very popular, and they decided to scale to a 60-barrel. And he said, well, don't you have all these different malts that you sell? I work for Country Malt Group. Okay, I'll admit that. And we sold imported malts. Don't you have all these different malts in silos over there? And then you guys just use different bags to bag them up? I said, no. I said, each country has their own bags. Each malt producer has their own bags. Those bags are bagged over in, in Europe, dude. And then they're coming over here. He goes, well, I want to get a silo of it. I said, you can't. And so what I'm telling is the small producers, and even if you're a homebrewer who wants to own a brewery someday, you know, if you think you want to scale up at some point, you need to like maybe talk to your supplier before you get locked into your recipes and say, you know, someday I want to scale up. This is the type of beer I want to uh, produce. And, um, um, you know, what, what are the best uh, uh, substitutions? that I could do this. So I'll go back to the, to the local person who, um, who, who was using all of these German malts in, in their Donko, all this German Munich. And I told him, I said, just bring it in a little at a time. Well, he decided to do an experiment because they had a tap room and he was just going to make one batch with all the, all the, the domestic malts and zero, okay. of, zero of the imported ones. And he figured he'd just put it on, see if anybody said anything. And then he could just say, oh, it's it's a seasonal. Well, he put it on. Not one customer said a word. Not any of his accounts who were like pubs. Nobody said a word. He said, Terry, nobody noticed. And I'm like, mm-hmm. And so he was <laughs> able to reduce his costs a lot. You know, people are so funny with their suppliers. I had a guy who lived in the, mount the coastal mountains in Oregon. 
And he's a, he was ex-Vietnam vet. And he needed, he would only have this particular imported British Maris Otter mold. And he said, I need it tomorrow. I said, I'm so sorry. You know, I'm putting in the order today. It'll get put on a truck tomorrow. You won't get it till the day after that. He goes, well, can't you helicopter it in? I'm like, dude, this is not Vietnam. We don't have a helicopter. We can't helicopter a, a pallet of malt up to your mountain, you know, garage where you're making this beer. I mean, people are very funny. So there's a balance with the creativity. If you're a home brewer, I, I want you to go as crazy as you can. Every Crayola color of malt in that homebrew shop is the same. You go for it based on your budget and what you want to do. And if you want to put a roasted malt and chocolate and raspberries and ginger into the same beer, you go for it. I don't know if it'll sell. Nowadays, probably it would. Yeah. Um, but if you then open a brewery, and you, you know, as I said, these people who are like insist it has to be imported, um, be careful because your beer is really important to you. It's important to your customers. It may, your customers may or may not be able to taste it, even if they go from one pint to the next pint, just like that one brewery noticed um, of the same beer, but with different ingredients. Um, but the survival of your business is super important because here's what happens. People take on their breweries as if they were their kid. And I have seen more marriages dissolve trying to keep that brewery alive. It's not your kid. You know, if you're going to open a brewery, make a written agreement with your spouse that you will sacrifice the brewery before the marriage and the family do it. I'm not kidding. Um, and that is part of why I never opened a brewery because I knew I would take it too seriously and I didn't want, I didn't want to sacrifice my, my marriage and my family, you know? Um, and you can, and also know that if you own a brewery, you are probably not going to be the one brewing the beer because it's easier to train someone to brew your beer than to run your brewery. And if your brewery is struggling, um, you will train someone to brew the beer and you will, you will run the brewery and you will get out there and sell that beer because nobody can sell beer like an owner. Nobody. Um, all right. In the very few minutes that we have left in this conversation, and I feel like we could be going for, I don't know how many episodes. Like we could make an entire season out of this because um, with your experience, but in the very few minutes that we have left um, on this episode, at least uh, I wanted to ask you the green door question, Ooh. which is uh, there's a television show called the good place. And in the final season, they introduce a concept of a green door that the characters can walk through and be anywhere doing whatever they want to be doing. And so if we had a green door on our plane of existence and this conversation ended and you could walk through it and be at any pub or any brewery anywhere in the world, where would you like to go? Who would you like to be with? And what would you like to be drinking? Hmm. I would like to go to the Timothy Taylor brewery in the uk and drink landlord right there at the brewery because i have never done that and i have a friend who has done that and he's raved about it for years and apparently it's about three and a half percent but it has more flavor than you can imagine for such a low alcohol beer and i think i would like to sit there 
for an afternoon and talk to all the people that work there and all the regulars and just have one hell of an afternoon. I love that. So I know you have a working retirement. You're still going to be out judging beers and hopefully at events in the beer space now and again, uh, in addition to working on your art. But um, I hope our our paths cross in person, at least at a judging table um, in the near future. And thanks for doing the show this week. Thanks for all of the insight, all of the the perspective. It's um, it's super important for the industry right now. So I, I, I'm, I'm deeply, I'm deeply grateful uh, for your time. My pleasure. I've enjoyed every minute of it. As always, you can get in touch with questions, comments, and guest suggestions. Just email me. It's John Hall. That's J O H N H O L L at all about beer.com. A reminder, go visit all about beer.com there. You can check out the podcast page, the merch page and read great new content as well as the archives, which go all the way back to 1979. You can also follow all about beer on social media at all about beer. And if you're interested in supporting journalism in the beer space, and I hope you are, email us at info at allaboutbeer.com. And please consider going to patreon.com slash allaboutbeer, where a few bucks really does go a long way to help fund writers, editors, photographers, and content creators. Here, before we go, is a quick word from this episode's sponsor, which is the Best of Craft Beer Awards. Registration is now open for the 2024 Best of Craft Beer Awards. It's now in its 10th year, and this is a BJCP-sanctioned event judged by fellow brewers, professional judges, and industry leaders. It's judged in Oregon, and it's the third largest professional brewing competition in North America. It's also a chance to have your hard work evaluated and rewarded. In addition to traditional styles, new this year is the smoothie sour style category and the collaboration competition. You can learn more and register your beers through January 31st, 2024 by visiting bestofcraftbeerawards.com slash register. Before we go, don't forget All About Beer has a podcast channel now. Search and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Steal This Beer has new episodes every Monday and the BYO Nano podcast comes out on the 15th of every month. As for this show, Mitch Weber does the music, Jeff Quinn designed our logo, and I'm John Hall. New episodes release every Wednesday, and that's when I'll be back again to drink beer and to think beer.